Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. At the top of every month, I choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance and impact of it with a guest, who will then recommend me three titles most relevant to that topic, which I will then watch and report back on. This month, I'll be exploring some films from the queer vampire cycle, and joining me to discuss is Terry Menard from Gaily Dreadful. Terry, thank you so much for joining me on I Do Movies Badly. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about these movies. Yeah, and this is great because um, Terry is a, is a newcomer to I Do Movies Badly. Um, normally, it's just kind of my regular cast of characters who are coming <laughs> in and out like a revolving door, so it's great to have some, uh, pardon the pun, new blood on the podcast. <laughs> um, so, Terry, if people haven't heard of you before or uh, your venue, Gaily Dreadful, or follow you on Twitter all things they should be already doing. Um, talk a little bit about yourself uh, and about Gaily Dreadful, what you do there, and just kind of, uh, you know, cinema stuff in general. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I, I'd been writing for a while, but a lot of the venues that I used to write for uh, either, like, went away or, like, the the stuff, you know, as, as the internet does kind of gets rid of. And so a couple of years ago, um, I was like, well, I really want to, have a site where I can just write my own stuff and it's mine. It doesn't belong to some other entity and I know that it will never go away. And it would kind of like push me on my, my goal of wanting to be like a critic. And so I, I created the website gaily dreadful. Um, cause well, I'm, I'm gay and I like horror movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and since then it's kind of taken on a different root where um it's not just about my writing um i have um, a stable of of writers that write for it and i'm always trying to find more people who identify with the lgbtq plus community to Mm -hmm. um give voices to people that might not necessarily have their voices heard very often Mm -hmm. um so i have that and then um, i also last year on a lark started a a podcast called scarred for life with uh my friend Mary Beth McAndrews, where we kind of talk with people about the movies that scared him as a kid uh, and sort of like dig into that kind of nostalgia and, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically what I've been doing for the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> and on Scarred for Life, have you talked about Return to Oz yet? Oh, we have. We, um, <laughs> we actually, I was surprised... Uh, it's that's a movie that I, I remember seeing bits and pieces of as a kid, and I don't remember if I'd ever seen the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we reached out to the actress Bri- Bria Grant, she wanted to talk about that movie, so we did talk about that back in like uh, I think January of this year. But like, it's amazing the kinds of uh, movies that were made, in, especially in the '80s, for kids <laughs> that uh, aren't really kids' movies. It doesn't sure. seem like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems like it's kind of just been a common trend through kids' movies. I mean, Dumbo has some like horrifying oh, yeah. psychedelic sequences um that's a, that's a really interesting angle for a podcast too because just I, I think like as a kid certainly if i stumbled upon the exorcist on tv i'd turn it on and then also 
turn it off immediately when the spider walk sequence started or something like that. But but it was like <laughs> it was fear, but there was also then it's still a curiosity to go back to it. Um, you know, to change the channel, like right. well, you know, maybe maybe it's maybe it's back on now. But yeah, then then films which people commonly think of as as scaring them for kids, like the intention wasn't to scare them, and yet that's what happened. Right. right. Uh, I mean, we've we've had a couple uh, recent episodes. We we discussed ET with um with a composer, and oh. you know, there's a lot of horrific moments in that in that film and then we talked we recently talked i'd never seen this before but uh the last unicorn which okay. apparently if you were of a certain age terrified a generation of kids <laughs> you know it's a title that i've i am aware of but have never in, engaged with and, I, and i'm trying to think now like what would be what would be the one that i would talk about i think it would probably be the wizard of oz to be honest with you oh yeah yeah I, there's there's enough all the the flying monkeys there and the witch is pretty kind of creepy. Yeah, and which is funny because now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think it's a movie I've ever seen from beginning to end. Um, yet I know I have a distinct memory of watching as a kid and when the it seems like such a banal sequence right now, but when the witch was like flying through the sky, kind of doing like a, a sky writing, I, I wanted oh, like, yeah. I, I forced my <laughs> yeah. family to turn it off. Like I could not watch it. I don't know why it was that thing specifically. But it's strange. <laughs> yeah, it's it. And for me, like the the moment that always in that movie sticks out in my head is uh, actually when the feet kind of roll up after the house fell on the the one witch. <laughs> oh sure. And the feet just sort of roll up. I'm like, oh, that's that. No, that's not good. That's not how feet work. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a that's a wonderful. I was because I especially just I want to picture like a little like a kid who's watching just been and the response is like. Oh, that's not good. No, it's not <laughs> so so common, measured, and and yet also eerily objective at the same time. <laughs> um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about horror in general because I mean I'm not a stranger to it on this podcast, and even I I mean it is it is my favorite genre of of film. Halloween is one of my favorite times of the year. But do you have like a, a memory in your head of? engaging with it or or getting interested in into it as a kid or just kind of a, a moment or a film or something where you're just kind of like yeah i think i think this is going to be my thing yeah absolutely um for me horror has always been kind of a part of of my uh, of my movies um i from a from a very very young age i think my first movie recollection is one of the uh universal monster movies mm. um my dad loved um, those movies. And so we had um, a few of them on VHS when I was uh, growing up in the, in the eighties. And I, I don't know what my first one is. It, it might've been Dracula, but the one that always sticks out to my mind, which isn't really, I mean, it's a horror comedy, but it's uh, Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein, <laughs> which had like all of the monsters in it. It was like, you know, kind of like the Avengers before the Avengers <laughs> where they're all like teamed up or fighting each other. And, and uh, so we, uh, yeah, that was, that was my introduction to horror. And then the movie that really that I think really taught me what what horror movies were, because to me, those were uh, I mean, for I, I think people that raised at the time, they might have been, you know, kind of scary. But for me, it was just it was a comfort food. Mm -hmm. uh, but the movie that that did it for me as a kid was actually Nightmare on Elm Street. I remember watching that movie and realizing that uh, movies could be kind of dangerous <laughs> and that they could be otherworldly like it, it wasn't it was set in our world but with the dream sequences they could do whatever they wanted with them and it just like 
unlocked part of my brain slash kind of like broke it. <laughs> I still re- I still remember the first time I saw Tina's death and she's being dragged up the wall and I'm like, this this isn't what I know from horror. <laughs> this isn't like the Frankenstein monster or Dracula. This is something completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting because um, I know Wes Craven talking about that specific sequence has said that I think when whether it was the studio executives that were watching the movie in a screening or whether it first came out, just that idea of how vulnerable that sequence was because of what was not just happening to this young woman, but also how the boyfriend was sitting there and basically powerless to do anything. It's, it's a very, anything. it's a very emotionally charged scene and you don't realize it because especially nowadays, you know, what do we think of as Freddy Krueger is just kind of like this quipping, you know, fast talking machine. Guy. Yeah. Like comedic guy. And like, no, there was a time when he was, he was actually a terrifying individual. Yeah, and I, I still, like a lot of people, it's weird the the kind of franchiseness that horror fans have. Because, like, I know a lot of my people, a lot of my friends don't like uh, the Night, or don't think the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is overall good. It's kind of the thing that I was raised on, so I'm very partial to it. But mm-hmm. I think people forget that early Freddy that, yeah, he, he says some things, but this is also a guy that, that you know, cuts off his finger to torture someone and says, this is God. I mean, like there's some things going on in that movie that are just incredibly unsettling. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah. As someone who I didn't actually, those big kind of three franchises, like Halloween was one that I was always into, but Friday Mm -hmm. the 13th and nightmare on Elm street. I didn't actually go back and watch through until probably my late twenties, to be honest with you. Like I, I was, certainly raised on TV and movies, but those those specific franchises weren't kind of like a part of my upbringing like they were for other people. Mm. Um, yeah. so, so it was, I do kind of envy you in a sense of that uh, that early discovery because I, you know, watching it as kind of like a jaded adult, like knowing what Freddy would become kind of taints the experience a little bit. And, you know, the thing is, is that like that was, I guess that was my franchise growing up. That was, that became my comfort food. Um, I remember uh, the movie that I probably watched the most as a kid was uh, the Dream Master, the Nightmare on Street Four. Okay. Uh, and I remember having, <laughs> uh, when my parents upgraded from a Beta to a VHS machine, I got the Beta machine, <laughs> and uh, I remember finding that movie in like the store rental, except it was mismatched with the VHS cover, so it was this small tape stuffed in this big VHS box of <laughs> of the Dream Master. And I wore that that sucker out. Uh yeah, I it's it's kind of like my I guess my favorite of the those early eighty eighties franchises. But it was also one that with a few exceptions, uh, my parents didn't seem to really care that I watched. They had uh that kind of uh eighties puritanical uh, obsession with me not seeing breasts mm. or sex, which mm. uh didn't really bother me i guess <laughs> when i think back on it but like yeah i so but like there for, with with a few exceptions there wasn't a whole lot of of nudity in the in the in the nightmare on elm street movies so those were those were pretty much okay for me to watch funnily enough because like i mean that, what what do you think of with like friday the 13th it's a bunch of like you know half naked men and women getting hacked to pieces and that's that's not the case with uh mm-hmm. with nightmare on elm street your website and your Twitter uh, handle and everything, Gaily Dreadful, which is where I mm-hmm. uh, stumbled uh, upon you for the first time and, and uh, was recommended by the, the guys over at the Pod and the Pendulum. 
Um, shout out Love to, them. Yeah, shout out to Jerry and Mike. Great guys. Um, Although I have to, I have a bone to pick with them because when you approached me about movies to talk with, I was like, oh, I'd like to talk about uh, Benson and Moorhead. was my first thought, to be perfectly honest. And then I saw that they had just covered it. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> it, it you know, it was... It, it wasn't like now peek behind the curtain listeners like Terry and I went back and forth a little bit about like, you know, what, what, what could we cover on this? Uh, with Mike and Jerry, it was, it was Benson and Moorhead from the very beginning. Like as soon as was I approached it? him, it's like, it's, it's these guys, we have to do these guys. And I mean, I mean, thanks to them. Cause I had never heard of the two of those guys before. And, um, it, it was, it was especially relevant because I, another podcast I run is about cinematic HP Lovecraft adaptations. And mm. I just kept thinking like, cause uh, you know, and especially on, on Facebook pages, on web forms and everything, people just keep bringing up endless as like, this is a, the endless, yeah. a, a yeah, yeah. great Lovecraftian film, which I disagree with, but that's another topic for another day. Anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, when it comes to gaily dreadful and, and, and the kind of uh, work that you're doing, especially I love that there are these avenues. There are these, uh, uh, wow. Sorry. <laughs> It's, okay, so it's it's funny that, that you have this because uh, one of the running jokes on, on our podcast is I have cars that drive by that don't have mufflers, so I mute <laughs> an awful lot. And Mary Beth has a train that goes by. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I, I mean, I I, I'm in a relatively quiet neighborhood and I mean, there's stuff occasionally. And, and of course, like many cities in, the, in recent months, there have been some fireworks um, mm-hmm. that what you all just heard, which now I have to leave in the podcast. Uh, is is anomalous i i've never heard anything that loud my cat is sitting on the bed with me and she just poked her head like what the fuck is that um anyway but uh but gaily dreadful and um and and bringing this uh this lgbtqia kind of perspective to films mm-hmm. and to horror in, in particular can you think of anything from when you were growing up or just kind of like developing as a film fan where you kind of noticed that your perspective or what you were bringing to or taking out of a film may have been different than, you know, let's say me, who's a, you know, when you think of a, a straight white guy, I should pop up in your head, basically. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's weird, uh, because I, obvi- I was pulled to a bunch of content that at the time I didn't realize, and we'll be talking about some of them today, I, that I didn't realize were, um, queer or gay or had that kind of subtext mm-hmm. it just there's something it, you know there's something when when you are in a, a marginalized community where you don't necessarily see yourself um on television that mm-hmm. you that you start to uh either a read into something a little bit more deeply than than you than other people probably would because there's no reason to um, because we all kind of want to have that representation. We all kind of want to want to see ourselves represented in the the stuff that that we that we consume. Mm-hmm. I never pro- I was never thinking about it as a kid. It's only as kind of an adult going to to college where I went I I went to study literature. So I had to think about uh, fiction and and movies and everything from a perspective that was completely different from my own. I mean, one of my classes was like a feminist re- class. And so I had to look at it from, look at the stuff that I had read probably 20,000 times, but from a completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I picked up in, in college where you would sometimes read the same book, but it'd be for a different class. So you'd have to approach from a completely different mm-hmm. perspective where I started to realize that, uh, 
man, some of the movies that I for without even realizing that I was attracted to that I was pulled to as a kid were about either otherness or were actually about um, queer themes, especially in the horror genre, too. I mean, it's always Mm -hmm. been it's always been a genre which has um, been a way to express that theme of otherness, whether it's, you know, or or hiding it behind things that are quite uh i don't want to say quite explicit but hiding it behind this idea of like here's a monster or here's a thing and and, and kind of being right. very subtle with the audience as to, as to what's going on well and I, honestly the thing is is that once you start to like dig into why you don't really see yourself on screen because like you know there was the Hayes code the the mm. motion picture production code that kind of uh, it created these indus- industry quote-unquote moral guidelines of what cannot and cannot be shown on on television and mm-hmm. in movies. And so because of that, you still had queer people making making art, but they couldn't explicitly talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so th- I, I think that that's, that's probably why some some movies read as, as queer to queer people because for a long time you could not actually – it was illegal to see that on on television. Yeah, and and it, it's interesting too when you look back when you know when you have the benefit of hindsight and looking back on. I mean, even like um, what James Whale did with like Bride of Frankenstein and just kind of looking right. back like and sounds like oh now we can understand what what this guy was was trying to do with this film because of you know it, it all makes sense. But also at the same time he was living in a time where it was so dangerous. We're like yeah, you couldn't be and and an out gay director necessarily because that was, that was going to be very dangerous for you. Um, Right. It was one of those open secrets where people in Hollywood knew about it, but you just, you couldn't talk about it because it was deemed inappropriate for United States audiences to uh, experience it or UK audiences or any, anywhere pretty much in in the world to, (laughs) to like um, express it. And so you, you do get characters that what we call queer coded where it -hmm. might be that they, they have like an effeminate way of walking or they have a lisp or they do something that, or they, they're very campy or over the top or, uh, you know, very quippy. So there's a lot of um, aspects to that that – and now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, Freddy Krueger is kind of a drag queen, uh, he, especially <laughs> in his later – in the later movies where he's so over the top and so kind of in, envelops that idea of camp that, that that might honestly be why it's my favorite franchise growing up because it was <laughs> so – it was so over otherness. It was so over the top. And also a guy that is very fluid, if not in gender, then at least in identity, because he can appear as anything and anyone right. he wants to become, basically. And he even and he even does drag it a couple points in, in it where he pretends to be a woman to seduce the guys. I mean, like there there is that aspect to it that I never I guess I've really thought about growing up. But I feel a bit honored that, that you could come to this revelation here on this uh, on, on my podcast. Um, but no, and it, it's it's wonderful because um, yeah, I mean, like I said, and you even mentioned literature and going to college and studying these things, these books which you had read many times before, but now you're coming at it from a different angle. Because um, I, I mean, when I've talked about it on this podcast and other podcasts, like when it comes to movies and primarily critics and who are on the college level like teachers who are the gatekeepers of that knowledge and that analysis are for the most part straight white guys Mm -hmm. and yeah and and it's it's interesting and and i love that especially like we said in the horror genre how you can have these people kind of telling the story but hidden behind this this 
thing of like, well, here's, you know, I'm not going to explicitly hit on this topic, but here's a, a monster which is going to do these things, and you guys read between the lines. Um, and um, I'm wondering, this is all a roundabout way of getting into a question for you of um, the age-old debate of um, intention versus interpretation, and does it really matter in your mind whether the director intended for a specific reading or not? You know, it's it's... No, I, I mean, I think the, the easy answer is I, I think once someone creates something mm-hmm. um, and they release it into the world, it becomes the, the it becomes the property of those who consume it. Mm. Um, and whether and you can see that, um, especially in um, the last like 20 years where someone would write something like Fight Club, for instance, and it has kind of taken on an online meme culture that is different than the intent behind the original source material. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's it's one thing where like you can have a critic argue, no, you're reading into this wrong, you're reading into this wrong. This is not what he intended, but what he he intended what Chuck Palahniuk for that for the book intended to write and what people have taken from it are two completely different things. But I think that that is also the power of of art mm-hmm. that you can approach it from different mindsets. I mean, the movies we're going to talk about, you don't have to approach them from from a, from a career perspective. You can approach them from from a kind of family values perspective or you can approach them from like um, the kind of like political uh, situation that we were in in the in the 80s or in some movies like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street in some ways is kind of a you could look at it as a. A, a, a kind of like discussion of Vietnam War and the sins of the parents foisted on the kids <laughs> There's there's all so many different ways you can look at art, and I think that's what kind of makes it so cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I I'm with you, I and I love that, and I'm I'm a, a big believer in the fact or in the in the idea too of even like the writer or the director is influenced by factors that maybe they might may not even be aware of. Yeah. Um, and I I had a minor debate with it because I I one of my themes I covered on this podcast a while back were the the Universal classic monster movies and we did it as like a, a double feature almost um, mm. so each episode was two movies that the 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 guest a guy named Gavin Mebius kind of had them linked together by a specific theme basically and okay. I I wish I could remember the specific details of it but I remember talking about um, gay subtext in. Uh, the original Dracula because oh, yeah. there were rumors that Bram Stoker was himself gay, but just, but like closeted basically. And yes. No, uh, it's, it's, it, that was one thing I was going to bring up as we kind of were talking about um, this, the subject tonight is that, uh, you know, vampires have always been kind of from the very Gothic tradition uh, that were established from most famously from, from Bram Stoker's work, but also before him, Carmilla, which is about a female vampire who seduces other women and only bites other women. Like there's definitely a very overt lesbian subtext to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But with, with Bram Stoker, I I think historians have, have all kind of agreed that he was probably a closeted homosexual who I, 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 he wrote this incredibly, beautiful love letter to um walt whitman Mm -hmm. uh the poet and it's it's he sat on it for like four years and didn't send it because he was afraid of of what the response was going to be with it because it's it's basically an undying love like if you and it's all talked in like in, in subtextual terms where he's like 
if you're kind of man that I think you are, then then you will like this this letter. And if you're not, please throw it away and burn it and never talk about it again. Like that is kind of how he he starts it off. Mm-hmm. And when he was starting to write uh, Dracula, he wrote it a month after one of his peer slash rivals, Oscar Wilde, was convicted of the crime of sodomy. So mm. there is there is a lot of I think subtextual and maybe subconscious uh, exploration of homosexuality in that book because he was uh afraid of of what he what was what he was and what society had deemed him to mm-hmm. be uh deviant yeah no and th- there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom and insight there I, I think when it if i can remember correctly when it came to how i was talking about it with the actual film it was mm. i think maybe i was i was reading it as dracula being a um a self-loathing uh, yeah. Get in the sense of like how how he really kind of shuns men and, and kind of goes over the top to sort of appear that he's really into women. Oh um, yeah. I, I I don't I don't know if that's the case. That's just kind of what I'm spitballing. But I remember being uh, getting into a debate with someone because I brought that context to it with the Bram Stoker history, and I got a lot of pushback because one, it wasn't confirmed, and two. That's that's not to say that that's what Todd Browning was intending to do when he was making the, the movie. And it's like, well, but who cares if that's what he was intending to do? Well, and I think we'll we'll kind of touch on that with um, at least two of the movies that I'm talking that I brought tonight because I don't necessarily think the intent was there, mm-hmm. but whether the intent was there or not, uh, <laughs> there's definite subtext there. It's sort of like it's sort of like when uh, everyone you know everyone calls the the second Freddy movie, the, you know, the gay, mm-hmm. the gay one. And the director for the longest time would be like, well, I never thought it was gay. And it's, it's like, okay, but whether you thought it was or not, there is definitely uh, subtext there. And I, and I, so at that, at that point, it kind of goes back to the question of, of, of art. And it, once it's out in the public's domain and the public is consuming it. Yeah. I think the director's intent or the writer's intent doesn't matter anymore mm-hmm. and it to some degree well and and even i mean the the director as much as you want may want to buy into the auteur theory or whatever like the director is only one albeit an important one but one yep. link in a chain which makes a movie um i remember i i can't i don't know if this is canon or if i can find collaboration but i feel like i read an interview or listened to an interview between john boyega and oscar isaac that said in the first uh, in Star Wars Episode Seven, they were both playing it as though they were into each other romantically, even though that mm-hmm. didn't exist on the page or that wasn't what J.J. Abrams was trying to do. And once you see that, or once you read that, or once you listen to that, and then you just see the relationship with the rest of the movies, like yeah, that that's so much. <laughs> I prefer that one to what's actually being given. Yeah, I yeah, same. I it's it's I was one that was, you know, on, on the rallying cry of make him gay because <laughs> the chemistry they had on the screen, it's it's framed in such a if it was a, a man and a woman rushing to each other the way they do when they first see each other mm-hmm. uh, after being separated for a while, you the audience would be like, oh, they want a bone. <laughs> I, so it's and they have that kind of chemistry together. Mm-hmm. No, uh, yeah, yeah, one one hundred percent agree with you on that. Um, but uh, okay, I I think without further ado, maybe we should get into the actual uh, titles that we are discussing. And um, as is the case with any guest and any theme or any topic in the past, 
The recommendations can come in whichever order you want them to come in. People do chronologically. Some people like to do it in a, they, they track the development of a specific filmmaker. But obviously this is a genre we're dealing with. So, Terry, you have free reign to talk about any movies you want in any order <laughs> and start with, uh, well, I guess any of the three that you're going to sure. talk about. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's the 80s is an interesting time. Um when you look back on it, because as sort of as we're in like a eighties nostalgia moment right now, yeah. it seems to be never ending. Um, there is like, there was a nostalgia moment in the eighties for a simpler time for like the kind of fifties style, uh, cinema. So you have like a lot of nuclear families for the most part, except in the three movies that I'm going to talk about, <laughs> ironically enough, but uh, so you have like this idea of like the nuclear heterosexual family unit that are either moving out to the suburbs or they're, you know, they're they're trying to escape this drama and the drama follows them. And you also you have that this sort of like uh, the Reagan era um, politics, conservatism of the time. But you also have the the AIDS crisis that is mm-hmm. becoming more and more prevalent in the 80s. And no one knew what it was um, and no one knew how it was going to um, attack people pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. And so I think as movies tend to do, as, as fiction tends to do, we kind of contextualize the, especially with horror, you contextualize the fears of the time. So the first movie that I, I wanted to bring tonight was Fright Night mm-hmm. from 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen it? I have seen the remake. I have not okay. seen the original. Yeah. Um, I, I like the remake. Uh, it's, it's not the same movie for me as, as the original. Um, <laughs> sure. I think a lot of the, 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 the queer subtext has been kind of stripped out of it for more of, um, a treatise on like bullying. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, so Friday night is one of those movies where, so the, I mean, the idea is this teenager find discovers that his next door neighbor is a vampire and, it, it's it's kind of it has that kind of campy feel to it because instead of um, dealing in, in rational ter- ways, he goes and he enlists the the help of a horror host um, <laughs> played by Roddy McDowell to <laughs> kill this vampire living next door. It, it's it's kind of it's one of those kind of ridiculous themes that's it's sort of like Rear Window meets like kind of campy vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that. The, the subtext behind it, because you have uh, Jerry Dandridge, the vampire, played beautifully by Chris Sarandon, okay. um, who can rock a sweater. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he's moved in next door, and he is completely queer, what we call queer-coded. He has a handyman that lives with him. Mm-hmm. They go antique shopping. Okay. Um, they're very, like, um, hands-handsy with each other. They're very comfortable around each other. So it's like they're – and he even – kind of hilariously eats an apple like he's always chewing on apples sort of like a fruit bat so like <laughs> there's like all these little tiny cues to to point that jerry nanjids is a queer character he's he's at least bisexual if not um gay mm-hmm. and so what you're gonna see when you when you watch this is you're gonna see that charlie who is not able to he's a virgin and he's not able to go the distance with his girlfriend amy and the moment she wants to, he discovers his next door neighbor and he becomes so wrapped up in this man, these two men living next door <laughs> that he completely ignores his girlfriend and becomes so obsessed with discovering more about their life. That 
is incredibly delightful and interesting. And, and it, it's funny because I was the the while you were describing it, uh, I, I kept thinking uh, of a couple things. Um, number one, that Fright Night is is written and directed by Tom Holland, and Tom Holland's name is at the top of my mind because the last episode in Canuxploitation that I just covered is Class of 1984 that he wrote. Right. And so I, I kept thinking until until you got to the point where you said, you know, um, as soon as this guy moves in, this guy loses interest in his girlfriend, starts focusing on this guy. I kept thinking, what is Tom Holland trying to do by casting or, or by writing the, the vampire as the queer coded character? Because in Class of 1984, it was a movie that I couldn't decide okay, are you warning us about the dangers of this youthful upcoming generation, or are you trying to kind of instead parody or poke fun or satirize kind of something instead? So the whole time you were describing the plot, I'm like, oh man, what's, what is Tom Holland doing casting or, 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 or projecting the, the queer-coded character as the vampire? And then it's like, oh, okay, oh, okay, so this is actually going in an entirely different direction than I thought it would be going. Well, but the thing is, is that and this is a, a refrain that continues throughout all three movies. Um, and I, I mean, it's not really a spoiler because you've seen you've seen the remake and it, it kind of follows a similar trajectory. But by the end of it and by the end of all of these movies, the the otherness that's represented by the vampire has to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And ha- so we have to go back to this more um, the nuclear family, the heterosexual side of things. And so he has to vanquish this vampire so he can basically have sex with his girlfriend Amy. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's basically like the plot from from a queer reading is that he must kill this inside gay feelings in order to <laughs> consummate his relationship with his long suffering girlfriend. <laughs> but the other thing that I find interesting about this movie is that uh, you have three queer actors in it. Um Amanda Beers, who plays Amy, the girlfriend, mm-hmm. she's she's a lesbian. You have Stephen Joff- Jeffries, who plays Evil Ed, mm-hmm. who his character is incredibly queer coded mm-hmm. through this in this movie. But he's he's gay. And then in the 90s, he actually did gay porn. Oh, um, and then you had Roddy McDowell, who was a uh, very closeted, very personal uh, private man who after his death, his friends would be like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was gay. Mm-hmm. Like it was it just was like a unknown, like a unspoken uh, open secret type thing. The other thing I was going to say of the two things at the top of my mind with Tom Holland, uh, Roddy McDowell also a supporting character in class of 1984 as a, uh, oh, was he? yeah, a teacher that, uh, holds his class, um, not at ransom, but by gunpoint basically. Cause he's so frustrated with the fact that, uh, he got into teaching and, and wanting to shape young minds. And, uh, these kids apparently had other ideas for it, but, um, yeah. And of course, um, listeners, if, uh, if you are not immediately familiar with it, Amanda Beers was the, uh, the character from Married with Children, I believe Peggy was her. No, uh, not Peggy. Peggy was, I, I, full disclosure, never really watched a whole lot of Married with Children, but, <laughs> but, but she was the, the, uh, the neighbor who then uh, came out on Marcy as gay. Darcy. Oh, thank you very much. Marcy Darcy. Um, who came out as, as gay on the show, uh, as well as uh, coinciding with coming out in real life. So, um, no, that this is a this is imminently fascinating, and, and I'm also wondering because I, I I kind of as we've talked about horror kind of being um, subversive and progressive in a lot of ways. I don't know if this is uh, giving too much credit, but I kind of want to give Tom Holland a bit of credit, uh, or or hope I can in that that arc of the movie and that subtext of it also kind of being a 
maybe a comment on the a an idea that was much more prevalent in Reagan's America, which was to to pray the gay away, and this yeah. you know that kind of being a, an embodiment of it in this movie. Yeah, I you know I I think that there might have been I I I, I gotta think that there was some kind of intent behind behind his choices in this because at at one point in the movie because I I mean it, again in the remake you know Evil Ed turns into a vampire <laughs> but in this in this uh um the original the the scene where Jerry turns him is very uh it's kind of his story Evil Ed's story is very emotional in this <laughs> um and it, it feels kind of out of place with the rest of the narrative that's more of a kind of a jokey fun type you know friday night movie mm-hmm. where like when he turns him he kind of he says you know you don't have to be afraid of me i know what it's like being different they won't pick on you anymore or beat you up i'll see to that all you have to do is take my hand hmm. and then he calls him edward he doesn't call him evil ed or you know anything like that he's like he addresses him like a human being and then turns him into a vampire so like he it's almost, almost that kind of like acceptance of like hey i know what you're going through mm-hmm you don't have to live this way. That's so cool. It's, it's almost, it's almost kind of like a, yeah, mate, like by turning them, uh, turning in the vampire sense is more of just kind of like a, a, the, the metaphor or the, the equivalent of kind of like, you know, be comfortable with your real self kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. That's re- that's really, really cool. Um, and, and now I'm kind of expecting that I'm going to be, I'm going to find this movie a lot more touching than if I would uh, have just have watched it on my own. Yeah, I, I, I think I, that's why it's, this is one of my favorite movies. Um, and it's been kind of and this is kind of why when when you approached me, I was like, it's been kind of in my mind because we recently did an episode of this on on Scarred for Life about Fright Night. And so I've been thinking a whole lot about this and then about the uh, the kind of vampire cycle that we saw in the in the 80s. And it's. Uh, this movie is, especially as an adult, like as a kid, I just was so enamored with the special effects. There's a lot of really good practical effects mm-hmm. in this movie, but as an adult, it definitely has taken on a little bit more resonance. One thing, one thing, I think you got to give the the remake, and I I I like the remake, but also the if I remember correctly, the David Tennant's Peter Vincent has a little bit of like a, an '80s hair metal flair to him, and and oh yeah, '80s hair metal rockers um, modeled their their look a lot after women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in some ways they were kind of like the, the straight idea of like of drag Queens. I mean, they were, they were, they were men, but they were definitely, they were playing men, but they definitely had a lot of the, the, you know, the big dangly earrings and the big hair. And like, they modeled off of that kind of, that kind of idea. It seemed like, yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, um, one of the albums by, uh, poison, not that I'm a big poison fan, but I just always remember <laughs> this was a, a, a record that was hanging in, one of the offices in, in the, the job that I work uh, is, is entitled Look What the Cat Dragged In. So, oh. yeah, um, you, don't, you don't need to have a degree in rocket science to understand the, uh, the, the play of words that they were doing there. But, okay, cool. So, oh, yeah. um, Fright Night, this is awesome. I'm excited for this one. Um, I don't have any other questions or thoughts on this one. So, I, I'd say, why don't we get into um, the second recommendation that you have for me, which is going to be, drumroll... <laughs> it's gonna be the lost boys yes which um have you seen this one i i have i, I have okay. the dvd on my uh in my rack and it but it's one i haven't watched in a long time i remember it being excellent so i'm i'm eager to revisit it 
Yeah, I, you know, it, it's it, it's interesting because of the three, it's it's directed by a gay man who mm-hmm. is a very sexually promiscuous gay man. Like I was looking at his Wikipedia page where he's like, I guess at one point was, uh, rest in peace, he's no longer with us, mm-hmm. Joel yes. Schumacher, but he talked about um, having sex with over 10,000 people. Like, oh. like that was on his Wikipedia page. Like wow. he, And I mean, obviously it's probably an exaggeration, but I he was definitely um, very promiscuous, which is interesting at a time in the 80s when um, AIDS was such a, a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that AIDS is really something that is explored in this movie and in the next movie that I'm, I'm going to talk about because this movie is all about this kind of like intermix intermixing of uh, bodily fluids. And there's the kind of like the wine, there's a wine sequence that is actually blood mm-hmm. where, cause the, the, I mean, the idea is that you have this kind of fresh faced young kid who f- follows this girl around and then ends up get falling in with the wrong crowd while his mom is trying to basically get back to that heteronormative traditional family values. And she's trying to find a man uh, to marry uh, <laughs> so that she has like back to that nuclear family idea. Meanwhile, the kid is going and fucking around with getting sexy times and turning into a vampire. Yeah. Um, but what's, what's interesting when he, when he actually be, turns into a vampire is that he drinks the wine, which is blood and then has this like, and only the way that Joel Schumacher can film this sort of like hazy orgiastic experience where he first <laughs> sees his, the girl that he wants like fading in and out. And then her face gets gets replaced by David, who is just like whispering, Michael, 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 join us, Michael, <laughs> yeah. like so seductively. And at that point, he becomes completely under David Kiefer Sutherland's character spell. And from there on, it's 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 sort of like this. Um this otherness of like finding that, that chosen family by that a lot of gay people have to do, especially at that time when, when uh, people were, were getting disowned and, you know, the pray the gay away, as you mentioned and conversion and all that stuff that was going on uh, that you'd have to find your chosen family. And so in some ways, this vampiric family becomes his chosen family mm-hmm. that he has to like be with. And, there's some language in here that like obviously uh, was written by a gay guy because like when his younger brother finds out that he's a vampire, it's this moment of that a lot of uh, gay people fear happening where the family kind of turns on him because the language the kid uses is very um, kind of nasty. He's like my own brother, a goddamn shit sucking vampire. You wait till mom finds out, buddy. Oh, like yeah. it's it's. It, it's this kind of like it's kind of like this punch in the face this face like oh god now that he's no longer what you think he is mm. that all of a sudden he's like this bad guy and it kind of ends at the very end like with the brother saying well even though you're a vampire you're still my brother like <laughs> <laughs> like I, come on <laughs> <laughs> that's not even subtext at that point yeah no um, <laughs> it's like i mean we 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 all now know what a truly shitty human being brian singer is um but one at least in terms of the films that he gave us one one great thing he did was that scene in in x2 when Iceman bobby comes out as a as a mutant to his family and his mom says like have you ever tried not being a mutant right exactly exactly uh there there that's there's basically this moment of like ah crap well (laughs) 
I'm still going to love you because you're my brother, but this mm. is kind of weird. Like, yeah, it is definitely a moment that, that feels in line with that moment in X2. You mentioned that he has to, you know, find this new family. And it's interesting, too, that uh, the family, the, you know, these vampires, these, these bikers are all, for the most part, kind of dressed in heavy leather, which is not to say that there is oh, yeah. a, a correlation between, um, you know, leather and homosexuality. But at least in the 80s, too the prevalent or there was this mindset that those two things were, you know, connected. And even Judas Priest, Rob Halford, um, eventually did come out as, as, you know, he was gay and, and people were kind mm-hmm. of saying like, if you looked at how he was expressing himself through his dress and that kind of stuff, like it should have been obvious to us from the beginning. Oh yeah. Like it, it, absolutely. And the way they, they dress is definitely, I mean, it, you could like look at it, I guess call it punk because like they mm-hmm. definitely are the, the, the kind of punk kids. But uh, again, that's sort of that that otherness that goes along with being the anti-society and, the, you know, the fuck your values, the that kind of that kind of mentality that goes along with the kind of queer exp- um, exploration that was happening at that time where it was, you know, we're at, we're, we're at the time when. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've been doing this podcast for years. That happens to me on a, I'm going to say, weekly basis. So don't even worry about it. I, I will I will say that too. So I love this movie. Two things that I remember about, um, or not even that I remember about it, but two things that I always primarily think about when I, when I think about this movie is, number one, I cannot hear uh, the doors... Um, <laughs> when you're strange without thinking of this movie, like it's just those two things are, are, are married together for me. And yeah. I remember when I first saw this movie for the very first time, I loved when the grandpa shows up at the end. Sorry, everyone spoilers. <laughs> grandpa shows up at the end, saves the day. And the one thing he says, like the one thing I never could stand about, uh, I, I forget the name of the, the city, but like all the damn vampires and all just the damn vampires yeah. and just this idea like wait you're telling me like there's a world and a universe and he knew about and, and as a kid for some reason that fascinated me and that drew me in like even more yeah and and honestly that that also feels kind of um uh, like campy too uh, you know because you throughout this entire thing he's been sort of like keeping quiet about it and the last thing that we get out of it is this like ah these damn vampires and it's like really <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it's it's not it's not a it's funny because that it's a dramatic reveal in the sense of how not dramatic it is he's just like yeah this is just part of this whole thing um which ba- like seeing as the roller coaster like emotional and physical that we've been on like wait this grandpa has seen some shit and like <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of wonderful um yeah and and of course but, i mean this is also a movie where where the you know again they have to get back they ha- he has to kill the the vampire in him in order to find his way back to straight society mm-hmm. i mean and that that's that's pretty much like a common theme that you'll see a, a lot in a lot of the the kind of the reagan era horror movies is they have to get back to that that kind of status quo okay um Wrapping up, Terry, what is your final recommendation for me and for the audience? My final recommendation might be a little bit more difficult for people to track down. Hopefully you still have a copy of it because I think the production company is doing a power move to pull it off of streaming platforms. But it's Near Dark uh, by um, Catherine Bigelow. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's very similar to um, The Lost Boys. You have like these kind of like these punk vampires that descend on um, normal 
quote unquote America. And then the kind of person getting kind of caught up with that kind of otherness and then eventually going back to their more normal lifestyle. But this movie, watching it as an adult kind of uh, it makes me feel a little icky. Have you seen it before? I have. It's, it's been a while um, and yeah. I can only imagine. Well, I was going to say I can only imagine what you mean by icky, but I can't. What? Please elaborate on that. Well, the whole idea behind it is about this this concept of clean blood versus unclean blood mm. because the main character gets gets I mean let, and gay panic it's also really about gay panic because let's be honest you have this very attractive very straight cowboy Texan character played by Adrian Pastar mm-hmm. um Caleb who ends up basically being kidnapped by this roving van of punk vampires force him to t- to take their blood that kind of gives him this disease that when we're when you see him later he's all of a sudden like uh he's very pale and he's sort of wasting away and his stomach is killing him and he's like just it's a wasting disease almost this this kind of idea of vampirism if he doesn't continue to feed Hmm. and and transmit it to other people so you have like basically a bunch of like gay people capturing this good american boy and turning him into one of them and his family has to like go through hell to bring him back Hmm. and get out the bad blood and replace it with the good. Like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of icky. <laughs> yeah. And, and now that you say that, like that makes a whole lot of sense. And also kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's a shame, but also th- this is the only one of these three films that is also directed by a woman. So it was like, right. so the perspective is not from just like a straight guy, but like you, you, you'd think maybe there would be this element of outsiderness as well. And so to kind of have that as, as sort of the subtext of the takeaway is like, uh, really, is that what we're doing with this one? Yeah. And I, like, I, again, I think because of that time, like a, the, the AIDS crisis was such a huge, um, public thing that was, you know, mysterious and it was, no one really knew what was causing it. No one had, everyone had these ideas about what was causing it, but no one really knew, you know, how it was originally being transmitted. They thought it was just, uh, sort of like, being transmitted between gay people and that it was sort of like the, 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 the kind of gay disease mm-hmm. that eventually was like, no, it's, it's affecting everyone. Um, but like, so I, 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 I don't know if I necessarily blame, uh, Catherine and, and her writing partner, Eric red for, for in, incorporating that because it was such a huge fear at the time. Mm-hmm. But looking back on it, I mean, it, you know, it's been, like that came out in 1987, so it's you know it's been decades since it, it came out. But looking, well, I think when you look back at movies and you see kind of the time period that they're made in, it's sort of uh, you can kind of see the kinds of fear that we were kind of grappling with at the time. Yeah, no, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm also once again maybe projecting and, and giving someone too much credit, but I'm also kind of wondering if there might be. An, an impulse or reaction where it's kind of like if if all of you people are afraid of this thing we are going to take it to such an extreme to make you so afraid when there's really nothing there like I, i'm uh, i'm thinking of the the very end of the i mean you talked about the universal classic monster movies the very end of the original phantom of the opera when mm. the crowd is chasing this guy they got i think they actually have literal pitchforks and torches and they're chasing him and he 
throws up his, his clenched hand as though he's got like something in his hand that he's going to throw at them that's going and they they all pause and they're terrified and he opens up his hand and there's nothing there and he just starts laughing and it's this idea of like i i am going to be ex- like what you think i am even though there's like actually nothing there um it's an, it's a very imperfect metaphor i'm not even sure if i explained it very well but just this idea of like if if you people you conservative people are so afraid of something then we're going to take it to its its extreme to terrify you even more not for the, not in the sense of like to validate your fears but just in the sense of like uh throw it back in their face in a way i think mm. is what i'm thinking of yeah i i, I could kind of see that um i'm not 100 percent sure if i if i buy that for yeah. for near dark though because i mean without trying to like spoil things one of the plot points at the end is that they basically give him a complete blood transfusion and and basically take the gay out of him take the vampire out of him Mm -hmm. and then they do that with the with the woman too that he was in love with and so he gets to have his sort of like happy (laughs) sexual ending (laughs) at the very end so like i it's it's kind of i think it's kind of a messy movie i think it's a well-made movie i love the way that it kind of blends genre um with uh the western kind of concept Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know. There's just some there's some gay panic moments in it that just don't sit well with me as an adult. But yeah. I, I it also kind of goes in with with the rest of the other the other two movies where you have this this kind of almost punk otherness that is descending on uh, the good society and ha- people having to fight back against it and or succumbing to it. It's I don't know. It was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. I appreciate too the the idea of like the recognition like that this film contains multitudes because it's it's been it's been a while since I've seen it but also I remember it my takeaway from it being like how amazingly as you kind of have as you already talked about that she blends the western with the horror and also just some of the some of the gore and practical effects like it's a it's an intense movie like this is this oh, it's is gnarly. yeah this is not the kind of like easygoing mainstream sort of um typical american fair like it's a it's a if you're caught if if you were not prepared for this movie you could be like i i was not i was not ready for for this night it take it's going to take me a day or two to recover well and and bill paxton pulls out a, a fantastic performance as sort of like the quintessential like fuck the world vampire punk where it's like he's he just embraces that that aesthetic so much and the the effects that they use on him are are just uh <laughs> It's really gnarly. Like you said, it's, this is kind of actually a brutal movie when I was rewatching it. I had forgotten how how violent it actually is. Yeah, and the even the the, the poster for it that's on IMDb is is Bill Paxton um riddled with bullet holes and burnt Looking to pretty a crisp. Rough. <laughs> yeah. So that that should give you some indication of what to expect uh from this movie. But um yeah, so as a as a recap, we've got Fright Night from 1985. And from 1987, we've got both Lost Boys and Near Dark. Um, Terry, before I, I do the sign-offs and let you go, um, I'm wondering if you can... Because, uh, I mean, vampires were a genre that was huge for a while. It's kind of faded out um, a little bit now. And, and like like all horror genres that kind of go through cycles, like, you know, if you're going to bring back a vampire movie or a werewolf movie, there's got to be a, a hook or a gimmick or a slant to it. But are, are there any films or filmmakers that are kind of uh working now that are that are that you're seeing like the spirit of these films kind of today 
Yeah. Um, well, so there's actually um, I have um, a couple. Uh, Bliss from last year mm -hmm. um, by Joe Begos is definitely takes the kind of like heavy metal rock punk aesthetic from from these 80s movies and really just tears a wild, wild um, <laughs> metaphor for addiction. Have you seen it? I have not. Oh, it's it's so good. It's probably it's, it's actually one of my favorite vampire movies. I have to say, it's just it's it's loud, it's abrasive, it's it's angry, it's a big like middle finger to to the world, and <laughs> it's uh it definitely kind of pulls from that kind of punk aesthetic that you see in like either Near Dark or The Lost Boys, and then another one that I really recommend is um a movie called Bit, mm -hmm. or is it is it Bit? Oh my gosh. Yeah, bit which is um about actually is about a, a trans woman who um ends up getting inducted into uh, these four queer vampires and tries to rid the streets of predatory men. So it's it's kind of an interesting um, reversal of the sort of like genre tropes that we see in like the eighties that were kind of hiding that kind of queerness and it actually embraces it fully and it's um it's a really good movie. That came out. Um, I think it's out this year. It came out on VOD. Okay. Um, yeah, I believe IMDb has it um, listed as um, April twenty fourth, two thousand twenty, as its U.S. Okay. release. Um, yeah, a transgender teenage girl on summer vacation in Los Angeles fights to survive after she falls in with four queer feminist vampires who try to rid the city streets of predatory men. Um, yeah. I'm on board for that. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can work that one. In. But anyway, um, Terry, this was um, this was great. I am I, I love this conversation. I'm looking forward to watching all of these movies. Um, if uh, if people have never heard of you before and they have uh, liked what they've heard, how can they get in touch with you? How can they follow you? How can they find your stuff? Sure, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Gaily Dreadful. Uh, my podcast, Scarred for Life, is um, at Scarred um, Podcast, and. Um, my website is uh, gaylydreadful.com, and you can find a bunch of uh, um, queer voices writing about horror and reviewing movies. Awesome. Um, there, yeah. Um, for um, Of course, it's easy to get in touch with me. As is always, you can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Um, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly by going to battleshipretention.com and finding it in the podcast drop-down menu, or go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. And it's easy to uh, uh, tweet at me at uh, Nolan Fixes Teeth, which has nothing to do with my uh, podcast at all, but I, <laughs> it, it was the name I came up with when I signed on to Twitter um, over 10 years ago, which has been far too long. But um, yeah, Terry, thank you so much once again. This was um, absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you. Yeah, and uh, listeners, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering Fright Night, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.